Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying the world of Jesus, and we hope to get you thinking about old stories in a new way. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Jericho Road. Uh, Thank you so much for following this class and this podcast. And for the next two episodes, we're going to talk about the temple, uh, the temple in the world of Jesus and a particular problem uh, with the temple. Uh, But before we do that, I want to remind you that you can send questions into me. I love to get questions at rwebster at saint-lukes.com, rwebster at saint-lukes.com. Luke's.com, spell out saint, and I'll try to answer your questions and even incorporate uh, questions into future podcast episodes. Uh, so, hey, let's get started. Before we say something about the temple, I want to talk about a painting. This painting is in the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. I'll show it to you right now, and it's called The Return of the Prodigal by one of the Spanish masters, a late 17th century painter named Bartolome Murillo, and it is stunning. This painting is huge. Uh, it uh, it represents a parable that many of us know, the parable of a, of a boy who uh, left home. He took his inheritance early, which was something that was never done in their world, uh, and he squanders it in this riotous living, and he even loses his humanity, laying in the gutter, so to speak, and eating the, the food that would have been fed to pigs, which for a Jewish boy would be the lowest, really the lowest you could go. And then he realizes that even his father's servants... Um, fare better than him, and he wants to go home and become one of his father's hired hands. And so he walks, and his father sees him a long way off, and, and this is the scene of the painting, right? And and in the painting, you've got this wonderful composition of father and son, emaciated son, in rags, and the father's looking longingly uh, with open arms of love. You see all the goodies that are coming the boy's way. New clothes, of course, and the servants are excited. There's a fatted calf coming into the picture. And then my favorite detail of all is a little dog as the ultimate welcome home. It is a feel-good painting, and it's one of the great treasures of our nation to have it hanging in the National Gallery. Except it's wrong. It's wrong when it comes to the story because the way that Luke's parable, or Jesus' parable in Luke begins in Luke uh, 15, chapter 11, it goes like this. There was a man who had two sons, and one son is not in the picture. Now, you may also remember how the story goes, but this is not the story that we often tell. We like to stop with the return of the prodigal, but the father leaves this scene, this scene of the painting, and he finds his older brother working in the field and he invites him to the party and the brother says in effect look all these years I've been working as a slave for you you've never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends but when this child of yours right this 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 child uh, that belongs to you not me uh, goes and um, this son of yours he says not even his brother goes and wastes uh, all of his inheritance on prostitutes, which is interesting if you read the parable carefully. Uh, Jesus doesn't say a thing about prostitutes uh, in the riotous living of the younger brother, which means that the older brother is thinking that the younger brother got away with something. He's all up in his head. And so when he wastes his money on prostitutes, he comes back and you give him a fatted calf and a party. I will not go to the party. And the, and the, the, the father pleads, oh, son, everything that is mine is yours. Uh, but we had to throw a party uh, because, your son, because my son, your brother, was lost. And now he's found again. And what we see here is a contrast between two people. One person who was lost, lost, and came home. Another person who never left the house but is equally lost because God 
God wants children, not slaves. God didn't want the grudging, uh, the grudging following of of a resentful older brother, but rather, but rather, God wants wants willing children to serve and to love and to, and love God back and love each other and to be a family. So, what the parable reveals is a very, very Jewish lesson from the world of Jesus. That is, there are many, many ways to be lost which is really a good intro when we talk about the temple because I want us to focus on the the problem with the temple and perhaps the um, temptation of the temple uh, to lead God's people a little afield of God's intention for them. And by the way, that's not a uh, an idea that's unique to Jesus, but rather something that they talk about again and again and again in the Old Testament or what we call the Hebrew Scriptures. So in order to understand the problem with the temple, I first want to go back to their original worship space, which is found in the book of Exodus. Now, I'm going to show you a model of it that that sits on the desk outside my office, uh, and it's an unfinished model. I'm still working on it because the thing is taking forever to do, uh, just like it took forever to build the first one, and I'll say some more about that. But it's called the tabernacle, and it's a tent, and what happened was that they knew exactly how to build it because God gave them great details. We're told in the book of Exodus that Moses ascended the holy mountain, Exodus 25, and for seven chapters, uh, he's given great detail on what to build down to the thread and down to the incense they would burn, down to what the priest would wear, down to where the altar would go. And I've got this sitting on my desk, uh, down to the Holy of Holies, uh, where the Ark of the Covenant would be, how the Ark of the Covenant would be constructed, uh, the altar of burnt ins- uh, the altar of burnt offering with a ramp going up, all this stuff is found in these seven chapters, and there are two points to make. Two points to make about this this tabernacle that existed before the temple. First, this is a very intentional thing. It's got great detail because God is pleased when we we serve God with our best and our intentionality. No question. A really good analogy to the detail of the tabernacle is what we do at St. Luke's as Episcopalians pretty much every Saturday morning when our altar guild comes together to scrub brass and to press fair linens and keep the altar just so and to shine up the silver so that we can worship God with our best and with intention, to trim candles, all the things that they do. I love to show confirmation classes. I'll show any of you this sometime when we come back into the church, into the, into the next world after the pandemic. love to show confirmation classes the beautifully pressed white linen cloth that sits on our altar, and and it has five crosses stitched upon it, five crosses. And there are also five crosses on the altar beneath, one on each corner and one in the middle to represent the five wounds of Jesus. Now, here's my point. Nobody sees that. No, No one can see the beautiful crosses on the altar. No one really can see that wax has been scrubbed off the candlesticks or the tapers. I mean, no one can really see unless a candle's just really burned down uh, that it's it's been so lovingly cared for. But we believe that God sees. And God loves our intention. God loves it when we give God our best. And God loves it when we we love God enough to to carefully press uh, our, our fair linen just so. That's the first point of the tabernacle. Intentionality is a good thing. Care and beauty and the beauty of holiness is a good thing. 
I'll show you a, 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 pic, a picture of Shiloh, me standing there, where, where this tabernacle stood for 369 years. And the reason why I'm smiling so big, it was an absolute thrill uh, to be in that space, to be where uh, God's presence dwelt among them in that incarnational way. It's just one of the great, one of the great joys of my ministry uh, to be there. Well, the first thing is intentionality. The second thing is it was nimble. It was way out there on the top of a mountain in Shiloh, and it could move. It moved through the desert with them, and it moved into the promised land uh, with them. And so it was both intentional, but it was also mobile. They could pivot. With the tabernacle, with the tent, it was a way for them to see forward and make decisions. They were able to, they were able to think on their feet, if you will. So it was both, it was both something, it was both something detailed, and yet it was also something free. That was the intention, so that the tabernacle would become a model for their faith and also a model for how they would live into the future, into any circumstance. I'll show you an example of how this works. Okay, I've got another picture of a really pretty little valley, and I wonder sometimes if the people driving through this valley know what happened there. You see some greenhouses and a little highway going right down the middle of it. This valley is called the Valley of Elah, and, um, and it's, it's a place of a battlefield, we learn about it in 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's a stalemate between two armies. Uh, King Saul of the Hebrews is in a pinch, and he knows it. Uh, he's facing the Philistine army. As a matter of fact, I'm standing where the Philistines would have been encamped at a place called Azekah. The Hebrews would have been across the valley in the high place on the other side, and nobody is budging. Saul knows that he's in trouble if he goes into the valley to engage the Philistines on their own because they are an Iron Age army with Iron Age weapons, and the Hebrews are still a Bronze Age army with Bronze Age weapons, which simply means that the Philistines have superior armament. Not only are their weapons stronger, but they have chariots and they have, uh, they have spears and they have shields and things that will overwhelm the Hebrews and Saul knows it. I took that picture from the Philistine camp and I have a piece of pottery uh, from Azekah uh, from the army. And because this pottery is fired, I don't know if you can see it from this distance, uh, it's so dark in the middle, this means that this is cookware. And I like to imagine that someone of the Philistine army might have had their breakfast uh, in this before the battle. Well, actually, there didn't have to be a battle because uh, the Philistines did something that was time-honored. Uh, they sent out a champion to taunt the Hebrews and, and to goad them into one final contest between champions. You may remember the story from your Sunday school days. They sent out a giant, Goliath of Gath, who walked up and down the line trying to goad the Hebrews uh, into fighting him with his superior armament, with his superior size, and there is a boy who's come to feed his brothers. He's from Bethlehem. He's a shepherd boy named David. And he, and he watches this Philistine uh, uh, walking up and down the line at will, and everyone is afraid to take him on. And I want to read the story to you with the model of the tabernacle in mind, both intentionality, but also an ability to pivot. All right, so here we go. So this is First uh, Samuel 17, beginning with the 32nd verse. First Samuel 17, 32. David said to Saul, to the king, Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're just a boy, and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and whenever a lion or a bear came and, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw and strike it down and kill it. 
Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, may the Lord be with you. Now, here's how the story works, if you don't remember already. David tries on Saul's armor. Um, he's, just a, he's just a little boy, <laughs> and, and it doesn't fit him. It, it's clunky. He's not used to it. He, he's, he doesn't wear those kinds of clothes. It, it just doesn't fit. Saul is a king who looks good on paper. Saul looks good in the uniform. Saul is sort of your, your catalog monarch, if you will. Uh, but this is going to take a new thinking. They're going to have to think on their feet. They can't win uh, on their own. They're going to need God, and they're going to need their brains. And so David says, this is, this is not working. He's going to uh, pivot, and he's going to try something that works for him. He takes five smooth stones from the stream nearby, and he kills the giant with a slingshot. He's nimble. He thinks on his feet, just the way God intended for God's people to be. Very intentional, but also also with the ability to uh, see the future and to adjust. So, This is a way that this tabernacle religion would become a model for them. However, in time, David would fall into the same trap as the older brother in Luke chapter 15. David would fall into the same trap of finding himself lost, lost in the weeds, if you will, even within his own religion. And we find it in a really, really important passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's one of the more important passages that nobody ever reads. It works like this. In time, the shepherd boy becomes the king. And in time, David secures his borders. He has a a vast country with 12 united tribes. And in time, he captures Jerusalem and it becomes his capital city. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the mighty King David, right, never any better than King David, has a bright idea. Let me just read it to you and then we can unpack it just a little bit. It's 2 Samuel 7 verse 1. Now when the king was settled in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him. The king said to the prophet Nathan, See, now I'm living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. Remember what we've learned about the tabernacle. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. Now I want to pause one second and remind you that when when Israel asked for kings, God said, I'll let you have a king, but you're always going to have a prophet to speak my truth to you, to speak truth to you. To kings. So Nathan thinks this is a good idea at first, and then, then suddenly God says something to Nathan which causes him to um, have a different message. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Are you the one to build me a house to live in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Whenever I've moved about all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep to be the prince over my people Israel, and I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the great ones of the earth. In other words, I want you to hold this thought. Way back in 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 1, God says, I don't want a house. I don't want this house. 
So from the very beginning, the idea of the temple was not God's intention. The tabernacle was God's intention, built with every detail in mind, with a loving intention, but also the ability to pivot, the ability to move. Temples would be fixed. You've got to move to the temple. A tabernacle can come to you, and we can see this again and again. The temple would be trouble for them. And I can, I can go ahead and walk you through what happens in Scripture next just to show you how the temple is both the center of their world and also uh, a, trouble, a troublemaking presence in their world. David would not live to build a temple, but Solomon would build a temple, and it would almost bankrupt the nation. As a matter of fact, after Solomon's death, the kingdom would split in no large part because of the temple. The temple would put a target on Judah's back because, because kings would want it, right? People would covet it. There's a really poignant scene that many of us don't know about. It's in, it's in the book of 2 Kings. Uh, and you might remember from a couple podcasts back, mighty King Hezekiah, the really smart one who diverted a water source. So like David, he had to think. He had, they had a siege coming from the Assyrian army, and unfortunately their water source was outside the city walls so that Hezekiah built a tunnel that diverted the water to the Pool of Siloam, which is a place in the world of Jesus where they would wash before they uh, walked up the hill to go into the temple precincts. And so this Pool of Siloam would be an eternal reminder for the Hebrew people of a leader who could, who could pivot, who was nimble, who was quick, and who was brave. So Hezekiah's tumble, tunnel rather, and the pool uh, would always be a monument to that. Well, Hezekiah had his great moments and he had his bad moments, just like the rest of us. We're all just a mixed bag of wonderful things and terrible things. And so we're told in the book of 2 Kings chapter 20 that Hezekiah fell ill and God healed him. And then some envoys sent him a letter. And I'll just read this to you. This is, this is 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 12. Just remember, there are lots of ways to be lost and even kings can lose their way. At that time, King Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan of Babylon, Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Hezekiah welcomed them. He showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, and all that was found in the storehouses. There was nothing in his house and all of his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. The prophet Isaiah came to King Hezekiah and said, What did these men say? Let's pause. Remember, when you get a king, you always need to have a prophet too. What did these men say? From where did they come to you? Hezekiah answered. They've come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered. They've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. And then I'll add my verse to this, right? I even told them that the key was under the mat. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your ancestors have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And it would come true. Around 600 years before the birth of Jesus, the Babylonians would breach the city walls and they would take everything holy from them. They would take all the silver, all their gold, the best and the brightest of their population, and yes, they would destroy the temple and they would despoil it. They would take all the stuff out of it, never to be found again. The Ark of the Temple and the Holy Lamps, it, it, it's an unimaginable tragedy, and it all really began when, when Hezekiah took his eye off the ball and showed him what he had. That was not tabernacle thinking. That was temple thinking. There are two 
great backstories in the Hebrew Scriptures that we need to know about in order to understand uh, God's intention for God's people and God's intention for us as well. There are two great contexts. One of these is the Exodus. We know a lot about that. We have the book of the Exodus, of course, and then we have the other books of the Torah to tell us what happened while they were wandering and God's law and God's intention for them, like the tabernacle. We know a lot about the Exodus. We know about a nation of slaves who were saved uh, from Pharaoh's hand. The other backstory is the exile, and that one we don't know so much. We have a record that it happened. Uh, you, can, you can find out about it in 2 Kings chapter 25, I and mean, you, you can read uh, that, uh, that the city fell and they were taken away. But some stories are just too sad to talk about. We've been, at the time of this podcast, we've been in a pandemic now for about a year, uh, and I remember the lockdowns all started about this time a year ago. When I was in seminary, I became fascinated with the, the last pandemic, which was the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, 1919. I was fascinated with how it changed culture. But what, what's, what's really interesting about that pandemic is you can read a lot building up to it, which would be World War I. You can read a lot after it, which would be the Roaring Twenties, but people don't talk about it so much. You can find a few books about what happened, but those are usually new books or recent books. In terms of everyday scholarship or everyday memoir, everyday newspaper writing, some stories are just too sad to tell. People just didn't want to talk about it all that much. And I wonder how much we will talk about this pandemic uh, and, and what it's done to us or done with us uh, and how it has changed us when we get on the other side. Only time will tell, but this is what I want to say. If we know a lot about the Exodus, we don't know so much about the exile because it was very, very, very sad. And what we do here is almost breathtaking. I'll read just a few verses of Psalm 137 to you, and, and I want you to remember that when they lost their home, they also lost their temple, which means that they also thought they lost their God. The Hebrew people were, were very concerned that they no longer had access to the divine because they lost God's house. You can hear that pain in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our harps. For there our captors asked for songs and our tormentors asked for mirth. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my, clung, my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, God's house, God's conduit, God's connection to them. But while they were in exile, and we may not know a lot of detail about what it was like to live in Babylon's super city with other exiles from other conquered lands, we do know this, they got busy. For starters, God called a prophet way out there in Babylon to show them that God is still nimble. Bad things can happen, but God is still with us. We're not ever left alone to figure stuff out all by ourselves. The temple was gone, yet God was still wild and free. God called them a prophet, and they started writing down the old stories that they'd been telling for a thousand years or more. In some ways, you could say that during the exile, they lost their temple. They got their religion and in time, God would bring them home. Now, we're coming up on what I'm going to call the next chapter of the, of the story of the temple, which is the story of the temple in the world of Jesus. But let me recap what we know. 
They did go home uh, eventually. It was a surprise to them, but Babylon fell and another foreign ruler, the ruler of Persia, uh, allowed them the exiles to return, which was a dream come true. Uh, they did go home and they did rebuild the temple. And in time, we'll tell the story next week, this temple would become the wonder of the ancient world. God's house would be something to behold. I'll show you a picture. This is from the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, and it's a scale model of Herod's temple. Now, we still call it the second temple because it's the temple that they rebuilt, and it never stopped functioning when Herod built it. But you can see just from the city wall <clears throat> how tall it would have been. And the rock that I've circled with, the blue, with blue there is the rock of Golgotha. Golgotha, where the Romans would execute people right outside the city walls uh, so that they could send a message. Golgotha, which is usually represented in Jesus movies and songs as a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. I mean, think of all the movies you know, the greatest story ever told, etc., etc. And there's a windswept hill and there's grass and the sky is dark and Jerusalem is off in the distance. It wasn't. It was right in the middle of everything. And Jesus was crucified looking at at the very temple that God said in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I don't want this house. And in Mark chapter 15, when Jesus breathes his last, the veil of the temple, which is the, which is the curtain that separates the holy presence of God from the people, is torn from top to bottom, which only God can do. And you can almost hear God whisper, I don't want this house. I don't want this house. I never wanted this house. I want you. So friends, we'll keep going with the temple thinking about what God wants from God's people. Intentionality, yes. Our Sunday best, of course. But also a nimble, creative, adjusting, curious, exciting walk with God. Which leaves us with a couple of questions. What are our distractions? What are our distractions? Here's another one. What can we let go? Well, friends, thank you so much. I look forward to continuing this talk and these thoughts about the temple in next week's podcast. God bless you.